Thank you, Pastor Dave, for that ministry and music. Today, we turn our attention to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 24, which is the end of the book, but actually is not the end. According to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, the events of 2 Samuel 24 come at the end of the events of 2 Samuel chapter 21, which we considered last week. That's why we're jumping to chapter 24, because chronologically it comes immediately after chapter 21. If you would note, chapter 22 is written out of the experience of David's kingdom as it begins, 2 Samuel 22:1, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So chapter 22 is a reflection of what takes place when David first becomes king. Chapter 23, verse 1 speaks of the very last days of David's kingship, 2 Samuel 23, 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. So chapter 22 speaks of the very beginning of David's kingdom. Chapter 23 speaks of the very end of David's kingdom. So chapter 24 is wedged between those two chapters, those two elements, the very beginning and the very end of David's kingship. As we come to our text this morning, David finds that God is angry with Israel and God is angry with David. In recent weeks, we have noticed that there has been a profound change in David in the fact that David, after his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite, David becomes much more independent, if you will, in his relationship with God. He fails to trust him wholeheartedly as he had previous to those circumstances. David becomes much more self-reliant and is trusting in himself and his own ingenuity, scheming, and wisdom to grant deliverance than he is trusting in God. Chapter 24 is God bringing David to a place of full and complete repentance. Chapter 24 is God showing David that David needs to have complete and final trust in God and God alone. So chapter 24 is instrumental in the complete change, once again, in David's heart and mind that chapter 23 reflects when we have the last words of David, and he is expressing this tremendous trust and confidence in God. It stems from 
the events that we're going to look at today. And it positions us for the very end of David's kingship, which comes in 1 Kings, and I'm going to be moving right into uh, 1 Kings from our study of 2 Kings. And so it prepares us for the end of David's kingship. But today it's extremely important for we find out that God is tremendously merciful to David. He's merciful to Israel. And he certainly is merciful to us. And we find that God is even merciful in judgment. The key verse is 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 14. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall in the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall in the hand of men. So God's mercy is great. That's what we're to learn from 2 Samuel chapter 24. And we begin by looking at God bringing judgment against Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 24, reading at verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The again appears to be a reference back to 2 Samuel chapter 21. God is once again angered with Israel. So God stirs David's heart to number the people of Israel in verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. The Hebrew word translated as incite literally means to stir up. So God did not place evil into the heart of David, but rather God brought the evil in David's heart to the surface. God brought out the worst in David so that David would see it, so that the nation would see it, so that David would come to this place of complete and full repentance. There is a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 of the events that are recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 24. In that parallel passage, the first word, words read as follows, 1 Chronicles 21.1, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So in chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, it's attributed to the Lord. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, it's attributed to Satan. So how do you reconcile those ideas and thoughts? I have an extended quote here from Robert uh, D. Bergen, his commentary, and he writes as follows. In order to bring judgment against Israel, the Lord incited David to take a census of Israel and Judah. The writer's attribution of the action to the Lord is not contradictory to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. It reflects his understanding that Yahweh is Lord of the universe, exercising dominion over all powers and authorities, whether in heaven or on earth. From this position of utmost strength, the Lord apportions power to lesser beings to be used in enforcing the moral aspects of the created order. The Bible teaches that God empowers even destructive beings, whether superhuman or human, in limited ways to bring judgment and ultimately redemption. In the present case, the Lord used both superhuman and human beings to enforce the moral order, enabling Satan to entice David to act foolishly as to bring judgment on Israel. The fact that the Lord oversees the entire judgment process is ultimately a comfort to humanity. It means that no malevolent action can occur that is not subject to God's oversight 
and divinely imposed limitations. It also means that nothing can occur in the universe that God ultimately uses for good, end quote. So here we see God using the instrumentality of Satan to accomplish his, his purposes. His purpose to bring judgment with the ultimate desire to result in repentance and deliverance on the part of David and the nation. So David commands Joab, the leader of the army, to count the number of David's potential army, verse 2. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. We know from Joab's report in verse 9 that the census has to do with determining the size of the military force. For if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 9, it reads, And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. So that phrase, drew the sword, teaches us that this is a census about the number of men there are 20 years and older that are capable of serving in the army. He wants to know how large his army is. Even Joab recognizes that this numbering of the people is a bad idea, verse 3. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? Why do you want to do this? What benefit is there to be had? Joab realizes that this is not a good idea. Nevertheless, David insists on numbering the people, verses 4 through 8. But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came down to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon, and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev at Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave this sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800 thousand valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 500,000. Once David had numbered the people he is convicted confesses his sins and seeks the Lord's forgiveness in verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. So we need to ask ourselves, what was the nature of David's sin? What had he had done that was so grievous? Why was God so angered by David's numbering the size of his army? Well, on two previous occasions, God had commanded Moses to number the people of Israel concerning the potential size of the army. This was done to demonstrate God's grace and goodness to the nation, how God had prospered them and how God had blessed them. So in Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it reads, 
The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers, houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from 20 years and old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. And then again in Numbers chapter 26, verse 2, take a census of the congregation of the people of Israel, from 20 years old and upward by their father's houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. So God had commanded twice Moses to number the people that are able to go to war, but on this occasion God does not command it, and David takes it upon himself, but it becomes clear that David is doing so not out of praise and glory to God for God's blessing upon the nation, but rather in a willful and selfful pride and trust in the size of his army for his deliverance. David has come to a place where he's looking at his army as his strength and his help, as opposed to looking to God. How different this is from David in the past. Notably, and we looked at last week, a, a review of Israel's fighting against the Philistines and David's most notable event, which was his slaying of Goliath. And if you remember, David is but a youth when he comes up against Goliath. He has no match for Goliath. He doesn't have any armor on. He has, he has no defenses. He has but a slingshot and five stones. And he goes out against Goliath and he says these words. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. God is going to help me so that everyone might know God's power and strength. In Psalm 20, which is written by David, we have these famous words. David said, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. So David said, we don't trust in chariots. We don't trust in horses. We don't trust in armies. We trust in God. Then we're reminded of the early days of David's kingship, which is given to us in 2 Samuel chapter 22, for it's forming a theme. And David writes in 2 Samuel chapter 22, and David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord devoured delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. That was David in his younger years. That was David in the early part of his kingship. But after his sin with David and Bathsheba, David's heart is moved. 
and he fails to trust God as he had done earlier. So God had to bring David to an end of himself and to restore David to reliance solely upon God. So that in David's last days, which are recorded in the chapter previous to this, David says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. David says all they have is iron and shafts of spear. But he has the Lord. He has the Lord. But what brings David to that conclusion? Answer, these events that take place in chapter 24. These are transforming. These are making David anew. So chapter 4 is bringing the kingdom to a complete circle. Going back to David as he first trusted God in the establishment of the kingdom. So David numbers the people. He now confesses that this was sinful. So God sends Gad to David to pronounce God's judgment, verse 11. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or will there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So God makes it very clear that God is bringing judgment against David in Israel. For it states in verse 12, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So God is making it absolutely clear that what is going to transpire is a result of God's activity. God offers David a choice among three different judgments. A choice among three different judgments. He does so for two reasons. First, to demonstrate that the judgment is truly coming from God. And secondly, it reveals the thought process of David in assessing this whole aspect of judgment. God is just laying open David's heart so that we can see it, so the people can see it, and most significantly so David can see it. He's bringing these, these innermost thoughts to the surface. So David recognizes his limitations. He's in a difficult spot. If you look at verse 14, David said to God, I'm in great distress. I'm in great distress. It's a word of helplessness. Helplessness. What can David do? 
What can David do? God is going to bring judgment. What resource does he have? You see, here is the first great revelation. David's army, no matter how large it is, no matter the numerical strength of David's army, cannot deliver him from God's judgment. It shows the greatness. It shows the power of God. How foolish to rely in an army of defense if God is against us. If God is against us, who can stand? And David comes to that stark realization. And he says, I'm in distress. I'm undone. What can I do? (laughs) It's hopeless. So David comes to the realization that he'd rather be experiencing the mercy of God than trusting in mankind. Verse 14 David said to God, I'm in great distress. Then he says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord. And here's the reason, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. David realizes that there's a real difference between between mankind and God. And here he sees it in a very positive light. He says, God is merciful. God is gracious. God is kind. God has pity. If I'm going to be it." somebody's hand, if I'm going to experience somebody's trouble, I'd rather experience it from God than mankind. He knows that mankind will not be relentless. He knows that mankind is ruthless. But God is merciful. God is gracious. God is kind. So he says, let me fall into the hand of the Lord and not in the hand of men. David recognizes that God is merciful even in judgment, for he says, for his mercy is great. God has pity. God deals with us in better ways than any human being could ever deal with us. So God does indeed bring judgment upon David in the land, verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. Presumably, these men are those that have been numbered as part of the army. That's why it refers to men. Remember that God is angered not just at David. He's angered at Israel, it says in verse 1. God was angered with Israel. Why is God angry with Israel? Well, remember that the events of chapter 24 immediately come upon the heels at the end of chapter 21. That's where we were last week. And if you remember, the conclusion of that message was the people looked upon David as being three things, invincible and indispensable and irreplaceable. They said, what could we ever do if something happened to David? He's invincible, he is indispensable, he is irreplaceable. In other words, the people are where David is. David is trusting in the army, and the army is trusting in David. 
And they believe that David is their source of strength and their help. David is their deliverer. So God has to bring them up short and show David that he can't trust in the army and to show the army they can't trust in David. But both entities need to trust in God and God alone. God does indeed show mercy to David and the land, verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. Stop, stop. Just as David had believed that God would be merciful, God indeed was merciful and brought an end to the judgment. David assumes full responsibility for what has taken place and intercedes for the people in verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David has, again, this incredible change in heart where these last few Weeks we have been seeing David not concerned about the people, but concerned about himself and the maintenance of his kingdom. He was sacrificing people, as it were, you know, having the death of Uriah, not concerned about the army after Absalom had rebelled and was not concerned about the, the many that were lost. And David now comes to this place where, once again, he's focusing not just upon himself, but he's focusing upon the people. And David is taking full responsibility for where, the, for where the people lie. And you know, that's appropriate. That's appropriate. For David should have been, as he was earlier, continually pointing the people to God. David should have recoiled at the thought that the people would view him as invincible or irreplaceable. He should have been appalled to think that people would have that kind of confidence in him. He was wrong in not pointing the people to God. So here he is, taking this full responsibility. Here we find God's mercy in judgment. First, God provides a means for the plague to come to an end. God tells David where to offer a sacrifice to God. Verse 18, and God came that day, that day, no delay, no hesitation. God came that day to David and said to him, go up. Excuse me, it says Gad came to that day to David and said to him, go up. Raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. David obeys God's word in verse 19. So David went up at God's word as the Lord commanded. David tells Aruna of his plans in verses 20 and 21. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build the altar to the lord that the plague may be averted from the people. 
Aruna offers to give David what he needs to make a sacrifice to the Lord, verses 22 and 23. Then Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the thrusting sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. David recognizes that that's a, a good offer, that's generous, and says may God look favorably upon you for it. But David wants to offer a sacrifice that comes from himself, verse 24. But the king said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Uh, David wants in sincerity to do something for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's glory. And then we have the building of the altar. 2 Samuel 24, 25, And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. I'd like to focus on that simple little word there in verse 25. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Why is that significant? Well, the answer comes to us in 2 Chronicles chapter 22. 2 Chronicles chapter 2 verse 1 says this, Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. The temple is built on that threshing floor. The altar of God it's going to be the symbol of God's grace and mercy to the nation of Israel. The place where they're going to be calling upon God is that very threshing floor. But that's foundational to Solomon's temple and all that's going forward. Here is this incredible change in the nation and the change in the kingdom. J. Robert Vinoy, in his commentary on 2 Samuel, quotes Vandenberg. And here is a lengthy quote, but I, I, I think it's very helpful. And so let me read it. The Lord's instruction to David to build an altar on this threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, was important theologically. Not only provided the means for resolving the crisis of the moment, but also eventuated in something long anticipated in Old Testament revelation, something that would become central to Israel's worship for the remainder of her history as a nation. The Lord had told Moses that when Israel would find rest from her enemies and live safely in the land of Canaan, she was to take her sacrifices to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored, Deuteronomy 12.11. As 1 Chronicles 22.1 makes clear, the threshing floor of Aruna became the site for the temple, the central sanctuary of ancient Israel, and the altar that David built there became the central altar of Israel. So the Lord's designation of Aruna's threshing floor as the place where David was to build an altar is the fulfillment of the Lord's word to Moses, that when Israel was settled in the land of Canaan, there would be a place that the Lord would choose from among all the tribes, the place where his name will be honored. 
The irony of this narrative is that the Lord used David and Israel's sin as the occasion for the designating the place from that time forward would be the place where his name is honored and the place where Israel would be finding atonement for her sins. Here one finds a remarkable example of a situation in which sin and guilt do not prevent the realization of God's redemptive purposes, but rather are incorporated into their actualization, end quote. It's a powerful statement. Here is God showing his mercy and his grace that he uses this act of David, this self-reliance, this now being broken and turning to the Lord in repentance and offering a sacrifice, that becomes the place where the children of Israel are to gather to worship this God, this God who is forgiving, this God who is merciful, this God who can be trusted, this God who grants deliverance, this God who supplies our need, this God that we are to look to, this God that we are to pray to, this God who is to be our sole source of confidence and hope and trust. A remarkable work of the grace of God, not only in David's life, but in David's kingdom. So it concludes with God mercifully bringing an end to the plague End of verse 25. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. They had learned their lesson. The judgment had been successful. David had turned to God for deliverance and God indeed granted that deliverance. There's great hope and blessing for us as we understand that God hears and answers prayers. God does grant forgiveness and pardon. God is truly merciful. So what can we learn from a passage such as this? Well, first, we learn that the best of people. Remember, David is a man after God's own heart. The best of people become inconsistent in their relationship to the Lord. We must stand guard over our own hearts. We don't replace confidence in God with confidence in people or things. We have on our money the motto, in God we trust. But I wonder how true that is. It's so easy to give lip service to trusting in God. David, throughout the middle years of his kingdom, is still praying and is still acting like a, a person of God, but yet his heart had moved. His heart had moved. We must guard our hearts, for it's easy to take our eyes off of God, who has been our source of health and strength in the past, and it's so easy to acknowledge that, and at the same time, begin to put our trust and confidence in people, or money, or possessions, or things and begin to spend more time thinking about our resources than we think about God. Thinking about the size of our bank account. Thinking about the size of our church. Thinking about the size of our offerings. 
Think about the resources that we have and trusting in those resources. It's so natural to us. For that's the very nature of a sinful heart, to try to provide for our own well-being. It's easy to worry about retirement. It's easy to worry about the future. We live in such a, a crazy world. We hear about inflation. We know of wars that take place. We've just come through disease. There are all kinds of things that come upon us, and if we are smart, we will realize that there's no defense against them. Only God can keep us safe. Only God can keep us healthy. Only God can protect us. And we have seen it in the past. Let's not lose sight of it for the future. Let not other things rise up and take the place that is to be God's and God's alone. That is our source of confidence and help and strength. We're to see how merciful God is when we stray from him. And we will stray, and we have strayed, and we'll stray again. But thanks be to God when he reveals our hearts, when he brings that evil to light, when we see it anew and afresh, when God humbles us and shows us our need of him. How thankful we ought to be that God reveals to us our limitations. When once again we feel them, we're acutely aware of them. When we're in places of absolute helplessness, as David was. When there was no recourse but to look to God. Before we get to that dire straits, may our hearts be quick to repent and to trust and rely upon him and him alone. However, may we ever be grateful to a God who hears our pleas, who provides a means for our forgiveness, who has ordained a sacrifice, which is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to bear our sin, our shame, our guilt, and who is the sole source of our reconciliation with God. May we be thankful that God has provided for us the opportunity to pray, to seek forgiveness, and to reassert our faith and trust in God and God alone. May we ever be thankful for that ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Through him and him alone, his forgiveness, his fellowship, and his hope for now and for eternity. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would help us to place our faith and trust and confidence in you today and you alone. It's so easy for us to take our eyes off of you and place them on things that we can see, things that we can touch. Lord, May we realize that you use the instrumentality of men, you use the instrumentality of 
money. You use the instrumentality of armies. But Lord, you are over them all. And as Jonathan learned, that you can save by many or by few, Lord, may we also learn that great truth. And so may our confidence not be in the size of our bank account or the size of our church or the size of our offerings. But Lord, may our confidence be in the size of our God, for you are immense. Lord, you are over all things. You own the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. You are the creator of the heavens and the earth. You are the giver and sustainer of life. You are over all things. Everything is subject unto you. O God, may our hearts always, always, always trust in you. May our thoughts always turn to you. May our prayers be real. May they be fervent. O Lord, as we worry, as there is uncertainty, as there is doubt, may our response be to pray, to look to you, to cast our care upon you, for you alone, you alone, can provide our need. May we be sure of that today, and may we repent of any lack of faith and trust in you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.